Okay, this morning we're going to begin a study on the attributes of God. Um, and just uh, to begin, I want to, well, we are, we are going to be using primarily this book by Arthur W. Pink, The Attributes of God. Um, it's a good one. It's uh, a relatively, it's very digestible, I would say. It's not, I hesitate to say it's easy because uh, the subject matter is not itself easy, but he, he presents... Um, a good list, a good collection um, of the attributes of God in an understandable way, an accessible way. Uh, so we're going to be using that uh, with, with some other resources as well, but primarily that book. It's my understanding we have a few copies, so if uh, anyone would like one, let me know. Um, they'll be here this week. They'll be here this week, so we'll, we'll have some of them. Um, on the bookshelf. Okay, so it'll be on the resource bookshelf in the main building, under the stairs. Um, and if we, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. If we run out, we might pick up a few more. But if, if you don't see one in the next couple weeks uh, and want one, let us know. Um, I want to start by, uh, first, I, I want to read from Exodus. But before I do that, I want to read um, from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, so we'll read this, read a little bit from Exodus, and then uh, pray to begin. Um, well, we should pray now. That's what we should do. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled to come into your presence in prayer, and later we will be entering into your presence in worship together. Uh, Lord, you are high above us, you are sovereign, you are infinite, and yet you condescend to us. You reveal yourself to us in your word. And that is where we seek to find you. Uh, but Lord, we can only see you, we can only apprehend you by the eyes of faith. And that is a gift of your spirit. And we ask that you would grant us that gift, that you would pour out your grace on us, that we would uh, hear you and see you, and that we would understand more of who you are, that our faith might increase. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would uh, guard my mouth, uh, for we are discussing and studying the holiest of things, the holiest of beings, for we are studying you. And I ask that you would uh, use the words of my mouth, use our time together uh, to make yourself known, to glorify uh, your own name. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 111 and 112. Which is the third commandment? The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. What is required in the third commandment? The third commandment requires that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holily and reverently used in thought, meditation, word and writing by an holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. So there the uh, Westminster larger uh, catechism instructs us that his God's attributes are to be uh, reverenced. Uh, and I want to read a couple of selections from Exodus And in particular, I want 
I encourage you to focus on the way that God describes himself um, and where and how we can hear and see his, his names, his attributes, and his works as he declares them to Moses. So first Exodus 3, verses 1 through 17. This is the story of the burning bush. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then I want to read from Exodus 33. And this is the much contrasting story of Moses not hiding from God, but desiring to see God. And God, in fact, revealing himself, but in a concealed way. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me... Well, remember, this is... Immediately after, God has given the Ten Commandments, or I guess he hasn't given them, but he has revealed himself to the people on the mountain. He has spoken to the people. 
um, Moses has gone up. Uh, and then uh, the story of the golden calf. So he did give the Ten Commandments. Excuse me. So he's given his law. He's spoken to the people. Moses went up on the mountain. And the people uh, made an idol seeking to represent God. Uh, That's very important. So beginning at verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how will how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, And you shall stand on the rock, so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And skipping down to chapter 34, verses 5 through 9. Now now the Lord descended in a cloud, and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord... The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, if, I, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. Well, I hope it's somewhat obvious why I begin there. This is God revealing Himself. He does not, uh, and and every time God reveals Himself, I think I can say with some confidence, He reveals Himself uh, by His name, uh, by His attributes, by His works. Um, and by declaring his relationship to his creation. That's how we know God. We know him as he reveals himself. Um, but even this we understand to be a, a shadow. Uh, just a, 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 a condescension. Um, a limited view of an infinite and unlimited God. Um, so as I say, we're going to be studying the attributes of God. We're going to be using this book by Arthur W. Pink. Uh, Pink was an English minister. He lived from 1886 to 1952. Um, All the chapters of this book were originally published as articles in a magazine that Pink uh, wrote and and managed called Studies in the Scriptures. Um, They were published in book form uh, posthumously after he died 
1975. Uh, much of his writing um, became well-known and, and distributed more so after he died, is my understanding, than during his life. Um, so that's what we're going to be u- uh, using um, kind of as our, our framework and as our, our guide here. Um, so I want to begin today with uh, an introduction um, talking about what are attributes, how can we understand them, why do we call them attributes, um, what is the proper way uh, to study them. Um, I will be out of town next week, so next week we'll be taking a break from this study and doing a kind of postscript uh, epilogue to uh, Matt Ream's study on, um, on Ecclesiastes, uh, which was a great study, so I, I'm sad to be missing the, uh, the epilogue there of that study. Uh, but then we'll pick back up, starting with Pink's book uh, in earnest in two weeks. Um, so what are the attributes of God? Uh, when we talk about God's attributes, we consider things like God's knowledge, His holiness, His mercy, justice, love, wrath, power, goodness, and so on. There's uh, quite a list. A.A. Um, a. Hodge says, The attributes of God are the properties of His all-perfect nature. I think that's a good way to think about uh, the attributes and what they are. Uh, Now, there are many ways that theologians attempt to classify or organize the attributes of God um, for purposes of of a clear understanding and and study of them. Uh, So I'll I'll point out a few of the most common ways of organizing them. Uh, First, we can think about or speak about the positive and negative attributes of God. Some of God's attributes we know from positive examples in the world. We can kind of see uh, forms of them, uh, albeit much diminished, uh, such as wisdom uh, is is one that comes to mind. We see and observe wisdom at work in the world. Uh, Mankind, we exercise some wisdom. Um, But others of God's attributes we understand only negative by what God is not, uh, such as God's infinity. We know, everything that we know is, is finite. We can only know things that are finite because we are finite. And so we describe God as the antithesis of that. He is infinite. Uh, it's a concept we can only know by the negative, um, by, by what he is not. Uh, he is not finite. Another way of organizing is by what is absolute and what is relative. By this we mean uh, God's absolute attributes being those which belong to God and be, can be considered in himself alone, such as his self-existence, his immensity, his intelligence, his eternity. Those belong to God properly, uh, to him alone. We can only study them in himself. Um, others are relative. Uh, they describe his relationship to his creatures, such as omnipresence. He is everywhere in his creation. His omniscience. He knows all things in his creation. His sovereignty, he is uh, Lord and sovereign over all of his creation. They describe his relationship. So we call that uh, absolute and relative. Uh, Another way, a very common way, is attributes that are communicable versus incommunicable. And this is a a big one that is used uh, often. Um, By this we mean God's communicable, or we might say common attributes, are those which we observe present in in creatures, Uh, Though they are analogous or derivative, uh, and therefore they are uh, displayed in a much diminished sense in creation, uh, such as intellect, will, goodness, holiness, love. Uh, These are things which we see in creation uh, present. So he communicates them, uh, or they are communicable 
Uh, They are present in creatures in some way. Uh, God's incommunicable attributes are those which are properly God's alone. So it's similar to the absolute. Uh, They they cannot be observed in creation, uh, such as God's independence, uh, his aseity or his self-existence, and his uh, immutability, unchangeableness. These are things which we don't see in creation. Um, they They exist in God alone. Now, it's important to note here that, um, properly speaking, there is no attribute of God that is uh, communicable or common, simply because of the infinite distance between creator and creature. So even the ones that we see in creation, wisdom, love, things like that, uh, when we speak of God's love, God's wisdom, it is so far above, uh, so far separate from creation and what especially fallen creatures can understand and experience um, that it's it's completely different. We're talking about a completely different thing. Um, and so that's an important thing to note. Just because God communicates some of his attributes to his people is not to say that what we know of, what, what we experience and feel or exercise as love um, is the same as God's love. It is not. We must remember that we are seeing only a passing glimpse of God's attribute, especially, as I said, in a post-fall creation environment. Now, why are they called attributes? We call these the properties of God's nature attributes because they're characteristics that we attribute to God, or we uh, Scripture attributes to God. We might say we, we locate these things in God. Um, and I want to read here from um, Petrus van Maastricht. Um, who was, I believe, a Dutch theologian. I'm indebted to Glenn here, who who kindly gave me this book. Um, It's been very helpful. He he speaks of God's attributes in a very helpful way. But I want to read a bit here uh, about why we call them attributes and what what we're doing here. Uh, Therefore, they are called attributes, if if you should attend to the term, not because they are in God or because they are present and inhere in Him as accidents and qualities, but rather because they are attributed by us to God. That is, they are predicated of Him. They belong to Him and are of His essence, or more rightly said, they are His essence itself. They are otherwise designated as properties, but they denote... I'm skipping a little bit here. um, Because they denote the essential reckoning of a subject, and also as names... In the same way that names do. That's what he's saying. If you want the thing they express, they are nothing but the one infinite perfection of God, insofar as it is apprehended by us in various inadequate concepts. And then a little bit later on, he says, Thus, this hodgepodge of attributes arises, not so much from God's perfection as from our imperfection. There's many different lists, many different collections of God's attributes or... or, um, ways in which theologians uh, identify them. That's what he's referring to as the hodgepodge of attributes. Uh, They arise from our imperfections. Namely, when from these things which we see belong to creatures, we attribute certain ones to God, we remove others from him, others which do not belong to God. Then from the things attributed to him, we remove all imperfection which in creatures customarily adheres to them. 
Because in the most perfect one, imperfection does not occur. And finally, in the remaining things attributed, we add the infinite preeminence that belongs to him by reason of the infinity of his essence. And this, at last, is the way to investigate the divine attributes. So what he's saying there very helpfully is uh, that we attribute certain things to God that we observe in creation, but in doing so, we must separate all of our imperfections first. We have imperfections. We have uh, flaws, corruptions that necessarily attach to everything about us. And so when we are describing how these things are present in God, we must remove our imperfections and add to him all of the divine perfections that are proper to him. Uh, He is perfect, infinite, um, so we cannot attribute to him anything that uh, includes the imperfections of creatures. Uh, And I hope that that's helpful. So we've mentioned a few attributes already. Uh, But the question may arise, how many attributes are there? (laughs) So Pink's book uh, that we'll be using uh, lists 17. We'll be going through them. uh, My hope is uh, maybe two at a time, two chapters at a time, something like that. Um, But as many theologians as you read on the topic of God's attributes, you'll find that many different lists. Um, Herman Bovink uh, says the number of attributes he has revealed of himself is so great that one cannot possibly sum them up completely. So there's no agreed upon or definitive list of God's attributes. And that's in large part because of what uh, Van Maastricht alludes to in the quote I read. Uh, that being that uh, something that all the reformed theologians generally agree upon, uh, namely that God's attributes are as unlimited and as infinite as God himself And this brings us to consider um, the first attribute of God that I want to focus on. One that Pink doesn't go into, but many theologians do, especially those that do uh, dogmatics or systematic theology. um, That being the simplicity of God. Uh, This, I believe, is foundational. I think that it's very important as we begin a study of God's attributes uh, to really understand what it is we're studying. And the simplicity of God, the doctrine of God's simplicity helps us. So here I want to read something of Bob Inc. I commented to Glenn that it's completely ridiculous to bring in a stack of books this big. Uh, so hopefully this will be the last time. But there's just really helpful things here about these foundational things of God's attributes that I want to read um, just because they're, they're so well put. Uh, so this is Bob Inc. on simplicity, the simplicity of God. And he's talking about uh, here... The responsibility of, of a, a, a good, proper study of God, the responsibility of holding in balance and doing justice to, to uh, God's attributes, that being the goal of theology. He says this, Each attribute is identical with God's being. He is what he possesses. In speaking of creatures, we make all sorts of distinctions between what they are and what they have. But in God, all his attributes are identical with his being. God is light through and through. He is all mind, all wisdom, all logos, all spirit, and so forth. In God, to be is the same as to be wise, which is the same as to be good, which is the same as to be powerful. One and the same thing is stated, whether it be said that God is eternal or immortal or good or just. Whatever God is, he is that completely and simultaneously. God has no properties, but is pure essence. 
God's properties are really the same as his essence. They neither differ from his essence, nor do they differ materially from, from each other. So that's really the big idea of simplicity, that God is his attributes. God is what he possesses. So when we speak of or study God's attributes, we are studying God himself, uh, which ought to be as, as um, wonderful as it is a fearful thing. We are, we are studying God himself. Um, so the word simplicity here, it's not the opposite of complex or complicated, uh, but rather, it's better understood as the opposite of composite. Or, that is, God is not composed or constructed uh, of parts. By this idea, we understand that God's attributes are and describe for us his essence and his being. We see that all of God's attributes are present in God and fully satisfied at all times. He's not choosing between one property or one attribute and another. Uh, we can think of his mercy and his justice. Uh, Dan uh, spoke of this uh, uh, several weeks ago, of mercy and justice always being present at the same time. Uh, He's not choosing between one and the other. He manifests them to creatures in different ways at different times. We apprehend them in different ways at different times. But in God, every property is fully satisfied at all times. Fully present and fully satisfied. And by this idea of simplicity, we are restrained from the great danger of separating God's attributes from his essence, as though one or the other could exist independently. Some, uh, some of the theologians um, just talk about the idea that if, if God were not simple, uh, if God had parts to him, if God were composite, composed of things, then that could imply that there is some way in which God was composed, that he somehow was constructed that he was not the first being, or that he um, in, in some way changed uh, over time. All of these things are opposed to what we know of as God, as being uh, internal, uh, as being unchangeable. Um, he cannot change. So God's simplicity is a consequence or an expression of his nature as an infinite and immutable spirit. God is a spirit, as Christ himself says in John 4, 24. And because he is a spirit, he does not have parts or pieces of himself, as we creatures do, who are made up of body parts, uh, a soul, a heart, a mind, a will, these things we can think of and conceive of uh, separately. And the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, in chapter 2, section 1, states that there is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. So this spiritual, pure, unified, unchangeable, and infinite essence and being of God himself is what we are describing when we talk about the simplicity of God. God is one. In him there is no variation or shadow of turning. James 1.17 so he's not made up of composite parts that can be separated, changed, lost, added. And in no way can various aspects of his character be understood apart from his whole being. Though we as creatures are limited and cannot help but consider God's attributes one at a time, we must remember that we are studying God himself. Even as a jeweler might study a diamond by holding it to the light, inspecting Many sides at various angles. 
God's attributes, his names, his properties, his nature, all are one and the same. They are God himself. His infinite essence and his being as revealed in manifold ways to finite creatures. So to the extent we behold an attribute of God, uh, throughout our study, I I hope to remind us of this often, uh, that to the extent we behold an attribute of God, we behold the very essence and being of God. God is his attributes. For in his attributes, he reveals who he is. So we cannot think about or talk about God without considering his attributes. We cannot talk about his attributes without talking about God himself. And many of his attributes even apply to or describe other attributes. Uh, It's hard even to talk about his attributes without using other descriptions which are attributes. We, We think about God's perfect righteousness. God's perfect and he's righteous. But we describe his perfect righteousness. We describe his infinite wisdom. He's infinite and he's wise. But these things modify one another. They describe one another. And this is in large part because it's all God. (laughs) It's hard to even think of uh, for a finite mind. God is pure divine essence. This is what theologians mean when they describe God as most simple. Now, I want to take a few minutes to look at an example of this in Scripture where we see the doctrine of of the simplicity of God at work. It's nowhere stated as such. This is something that we infer uh, by necessary consequence of of all that God uh, reveals of himself in Scripture. Uh, So I want to talk for a moment about the righteousness of God revealed in the law of God. The law of God reveals and displays the righteousness of God, as well as his will for his creatures. Even the unity of the law teaches us something of the unity of God, because we know from James 2.10 that whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Uh, This teaches us something about who God is. Thus, in the law of God, his attributes are on display to us. Romans 10.4 states that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Pastor Sharp preached on that last week. Um, And he noted that Scripture teaches uh, that there's the different views of what that means. And Pastor Sharp uh, expressed his conviction that all have merit, uh, that Christ is the end, meaning the purpose, the object, uh, and fulfillment of the law of God. He's the purpose, the object, and the fulfillment of the law. So Scripture speaks of, of Christ as the end of the law. The law proclaims the righteousness of Christ because Christ cannot be separated from the attribute of his righteousness. This is what we're talking about with simplicity. Then it is Christ himself revealed in the law of God. And was this not the fatal error of the Jews to miss Christ in the law? To seek righteousness of the righteousness of the law apart from Christ himself who was being revealed in the law. We'll read for a moment from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now much of, much of this I'm, I'm drawing from Calvin's commentary, which I found to be very helpful. Um, 
So first I'll read 2 Corinthians 3, verses 12 through 16. Paul here is is describing and contrasting um, the Old Covenant administration and the New Covenant administration, which he describes... He describes the Old Testament as the ministry of death, very uh, shockingly. But this is to compare it with what was to come and what has come now. So beginning in verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What Paul's saying here is that the Jews separated the law and the righteousness revealed in it from Christ. They did not apprehend Christ. They did not see Christ in the law. Though it was Christ who was the end of the law and the one whose righteousness was revealed in the law. Paul describes this as a result of the veil which lay over their hearts, keeping them from apprehending Christ in the law and from attaining his righteousness revealed in the law. Uh, So Paul talks about in Romans, and as as Pastor Sharp's been preaching, by works of the law, uh, no man can attain righteousness. And again, John Calvin's commentary on this passage is very instructive. He says that it is only when Christ appears to us in the law that we enjoy its splendor. And, and Calvin actually makes a compelling case. I, am, I do not know uh, New Testament Greek, so I'm relying on him for this. But uh, he makes a compelling case uh, in verse 16 where the New King James says, uh, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Uh, Or in the King James, it says, when it shall turn to the Lord. Um, Calvin would would disagree with this interpretation, uh, with this translation. He he says that the word um, there should be when he turns to the Lord. A better translation is when he turns to the Lord, referring back to Moses. When Moses is read, uh, when Moses turns to the Lord. And by that, Paul is describing the law. So when the law is turned to Christ. So there it would say, when, one, uh, when the law turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. From this, Calvin argues that where the law, and indeed all of Scripture, is not taken as referring to Christ as its aim, it is mistakenly twisted and perverted. So this is a place where we see the simplicity of God uh, at work. That wherever we behold God's attributes, His name, His works, we are in fact beholding something of God Himself. The Jews saw righteousness in the law, but did not see Christ. Therefore, though they studied the law dutifully, their hearts were hardened and they did not recognize the Messiah when He came as the Word made flesh. So this, I think, cautions us as we Embark on a study of the attributes of God. Do not see only the attribute and miss God himself. 
Do not try to attain to or aspire to the attributes as though it is some kind of self-help. That if we just had more love, we would be more like Christ. It's actually the opposite. If we would be more like Christ, we would have more love. Uh, And that is what we are setting out to do. But Paul here gives us a good warning. So do not think that this is a matter of physical sight or intellectual power. For only faith can apprehend the spiritual being of God in his attributes. And I want to read I want to read Galatians 3 verses 1 and 2. passage that has been on my mind and heart in many ways. And so it came quickly to my mind when I was thinking of these things. So Paul here is speaking to the Galatians. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul there is saying that Christ is displayed, crucified among the Galatians, Galatian Christians. How is that? They were not there at Calvary. But in the preaching of the word, received and heard with faith, that is where Christ is displayed. Or in the King James, Christ is evidently set forth in the preaching of the word, received and heard by faith. So God can be apprehended or seen with the eyes of faith, not by sight. And that is a gift of God's grace. For finite creatures cannot look upon or fully comprehend that which is spirit and infinite. So consider again the passages we read beginning at the start in Exodus. When Moses asks who God is in Exodus 3 and asks to see the glory of God in Exodus 33, God does not answer with a definition or some description of himself that is all-encompassing. He reveals to Moses his name. He reveals his attributes. He reveals his works, his purposes. And he states the relationship in which his creatures stand to himself. That is how we understand God. Um, But even just reading those things, we cannot apprehend or understand unless we have faith. And so again, to understand the attributes of God as we begin this study requires faith. And that's a gift of God. So, why study the attributes of God? We're going to move uh, quickly here through uh, just a couple of kind of uh, ways in which we can um, move forward. Why study the attributes of God? Faith rests upon knowledge of God. Faith is not blind, nor is it uninformed. We cannot have true faith in God unless we know God, as he reveals himself in Scripture and in his works of creation and providence. We don't sit around and it is dangerous to sit around and just think from our own minds who and what God is. Uh, That's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, We look in scripture and and even as we observe creation and providence at work, uh, we understand from scripture how how to think of God and, and perceive and apprehend God in those things. Scripture, as the Westminster Confession says, uh, or the Catechism says, is the only rule of faith and practice. So we cannot, uh, well, secondly, we can, cannot truly know ourselves unless we first know God. 
Here I want to read quickly an excerpt from Calvin. Calvin says this, As long as we do not look beyond the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder His nature, and how completely perfect are His righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then, what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us, will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. And a bit further he says, Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. So as we learn of ourselves, as we learn of who God is truly, we learn who we are truly, his creatures. But studying God's attributes can help us tremendously. And here I'm, I'm, I'm uh, using and modifying a list uh, from Van Maastricht. God's attributes assist in the knowledge, glorification, and reverence of God. They assist in strengthening our understanding of other essential doctrines of faith. They assist our faith and confidence in God, as we know who He is, uh, He who, upon whom our faith rests. They assist our prayers by supplying boldness and confidence in God's promises. They assist other Christian virtues and duties. They assist in the blessedness of the communion we enjoy with God and with His saints in Christ. So how should we study the attributes of God as we move forward uh, in a couple of weeks, pick back up, uh, studying the attributes of God? Um, We ought to do so with some preparation. Uh, This is especially true, uh, um, I think it's the the OPC's Book of Church Order that talks about the responsibility of God's people to prepare to hear the preaching of the word. Uh, It's for the same reason. Uh, We are uh, encountering God himself, and that takes some preparation. We must prepare our hearts to consider these things. For if God commanded Moses to remove his sandals before approaching the bush because the ground on which he walked was holy... How much more should we prepare our hearts to approach the Holy One whose presence made the ground holy? Remember that no one comes to the Father but through Christ. That's John 14, 6. And it is only through Christ, our perfect high priest, that we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. Hebrew 4, 16. Secondly, we should approach with reverence. We must compare the majesty and perfection of the divine in every attribute to our own worthlessness as fallen and sinful creatures. Third, we ought to study God's attributes with humility. Remember the infinite distance between the creator and the creature. We should also study with a warning. Consider how disposed we as weak and sinful creatures are to be deceived and how perilous it is to stumble in these things. An example of that was uh, the law of God and how the Jews... received it in error. But also, we ought to study God's attributes with assurance and with joy. 
2 Corinthians 3, 17-18, immediately following Paul's discussion of the veil over the law, or the veil over the hearts of uh, the Jews as they read the law, the veil which is taken away in Christ, he says this, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as fearful a thing as it is to study God, to approach God, we who are in Christ can do so with confidence and with joy, knowing that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. We will never cross that distance between creature and creator, but the promise of Scripture is that we are being transformed into Christ's image. And so we are invited into the presence of God. We are invited to study and to understand with God's help, with the help of His Spirit, what He reveals of Himself in Scripture. And that's our goal. We can do so with joy. And that's my hope for this study. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to pick up with, um, with Pink's book. Um, and I'm excited to do so. And, and thank God for His gifts and His goodness to us in revealing himself in scripture. So let's, we'll close now and pray and and then go uh, to hear the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled even to speak of these things. What a privilege it is to be invited, to be numbered among your saints who have as our inheritance Christ himself and all his benefits. Let us never separate the two, never seek Christ's benefits apart from Christ himself. Never seek to understand anything of you without knowing that we uh, need we need you yourself even to understand these things. Father, this is humbling. This is far beyond us. This is far above us. Uh, so we ask for your grace to reveal it to us. For only by your Spirit and through Christ can we understand what you are rev- revealing. We ask, Lord, that you would pour out your Spirit, especially this day, your Sabbath day, which is set apart as holy to you. But as Christ teaches us, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Sabbath is made for man. You have made this day and set it apart that we might be blessed through it. Help us now to delight in the day of the Lord, uh, to approach your throne with boldness, with joy, and with thanksgiving as we enter your courts. Uh, Lord, we ask that your spirit would move in us and through us that you would inhabit the preaching, that you would make yourself known, and that you would do mighty things in, in the lives and the hearts of your people. And all of this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.